Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA. We're doing it on Sunday evening. Joining me from Washington, D.C., where he's on a road trip with the Brooklyn Nets, is Nick Friedel. Hello, Nick. Hey, it's good to hear your voice, my man. How you doing? I'm doing good, although um, got bad news today, Nick. Um, Paul Silas uh, passed away, 79 years old. Paul Silas was a mentor to me. And you don't normally, um, as a reporter, you're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to have relationships like this with people that you cover. Um, And all I can say is I was 25 years old in 2003. And back then, Nick, People that age didn't cover the NBA. Now there's a lot more younger folks covering the NBA today. Some of the best um, analysis and, you know, um, writing and stuff comes from people in their 20s. That wasn't the case back then. Back then you couldn't get on the NBA in your 20s. It took something special. Not that I'm saying I was special. I just, you know, fell into it. And he was the first coach I covered. And I remember... um, the second or maybe the second preseason game, it was in Asheville, North Carolina. Only time I'd ever been to Asheville, North Carolina. He was hired just that year to co- to, to coach the Cavs and LeBron James. He had been a head coach with the uh, Charlotte and then New Orleans Hornets before. Um, one, uh, I think three championships, a couple with the Celtics and one with the um, Sonics and was at a long career as an assistant coach. And, big burly man, you know, I don't, you know, in today's day and age, he would, you know, he's built kind of like PJ Tucker, but you know, not that, not that muscular, but you know, maybe a little taller than PJ, but that kind of, uh, of, of a brawler, a uh, power forward. Um, and I remember in Asheville, uh, Rick Bennell, who was the former beat Rick passed away, unfortunately, last year. He came up and gave Paul a hug. He had covered Paul for years in the Charlotte Hornets before they moved to New Orleans. And Nick, I remember looking at like, what the heck is going on? A reporter comes up and hugs a coach? Um, I was I was like, what, what is going on? Well, I get it. The, he was like, no coach I ever covered. He taught me so much about how the NBA game works which you know he was in his mid 60s at the time i was in my you know early to mid 20s i didn't know anything nick i didn't know anything i was barely getting by day to day he could have looked at me and a lot of people did quite frankly i don't even blame him but he could have looked at me as like this know nothing pest who you know wasn't worth the time of day and that wasn't the way he treated me at all and um <laughs> The second week of the season. Have I ever told you the Iron Noble story, Nick? No. Second week of the season, maybe the third week of the season, very early in the season, the Cavs are struggling. LeBron's rookie year, they were not good. They started like, off the top of my head, I want to say they started like 4-15, and something like that. And they were struggling. They were maybe 2-6. and And they played a game in Atlanta. And the Cavs had signed this guy, this role player, Ira Newble, who had played previously played for the Hawks and I think lived in Atlanta. 
and he was making his return and he either didn't play him or played him almost no minutes. And after the game, Ira Newble, who, by the way, I later came to like really appreciate really thoughtful guy, but this was not in his, uh, his wheelhouse picture this, Nick it's post game. The Cavs have just lost. They've gone to like two and seven. We're standing in the hallway outside the locker room, um, waiting to get into the locker room. Paul Silas comes out in the hallway, gives us his post-game comments. He's not happy. He goes back into his office. We're waiting to get into the locker room. All of a sudden, Ira Newble comes out of Paul Silas's office door, shirt half on, bag in his hand, like on the run. Silas comes running out of the door on his heels and we're all, I'm just standing there and Ira's on one side of me and Paul's on the other. And Ira looks back and goes, I don't care what you say. I don't care about you. And, uh, and Paul goes, get back here. You hip hop M effer. <laughs> like, I was just, I was stunned. Like Nick, this is my third week on the job, you know? And, you know, the thing is, is that Paul was looking for a fight. He was looking for a fight because he wanted to, to um, you know, get the team right. He, he kicked players off the bench. He kicked, he told players to stay home from road trips. Um, he coached a very different style. He was not maybe the greatest coach of all time. But, you know, he, you know what he did? He had LeBron's back. You know, it's hard to imagine LeBron on a team where LeBron was sort of picked on it's kind of a funny concept the veterans on the team picked on him, even though that, that team was bad um they picked on him and paul had paul had lebron's back uh, especially you know during that uh that that first season and you know he told us so many stories he told us of his recovering from being an i mean he he was an alcoholic and he told us about how when he played in the NBA that at, at the, you know, was standard. Every player got two beers, put two ice cold beers, put in their locker at every game. And some guys drank them right there in the locker room. And some guys didn't drink them at all. Some guy maybe took them with him, but he would go around, he would get a bag at every game and he would, he would go pick up the ones that the guys left. And he would basically drink like that after every single game. And he drank like that for years. And he told me that he was an assistant coach with the Knicks. And I think he lived in Westchester County. That's where his, his home was. And he was dry. He had gotten drinks after a game in, in, the, in the garden. And he got lost somewhere in the city. And he couldn't figure his way out. And he was so scared for some reason. Although he would never have been scared, Nick. I mean, did you ever meet Paul? In the early, early days, I believe we crossed paths, but it wasn't more than a hello. I mean, his whole face was all, all around his eyes, his eyebrows, and his side of his eyes. He had scars where he had stitches because, you know, he played in a different era where they beat the heck out of each other, yeah. you know. And um, he was afraid. He, he said to himself, if, if, he could find a way out of there and get home. He would quit drinking. And I'm sure there was more to the story to that, but he did. He quit drinking. And, um, you know, he, he used to hang out with Red Auerbach, you know, when, when 
when he was playing for the Celtics, like he would go hang out in Red Auerbach's office and just talk strategy with him. And he would tell me Auerbach stories. And, um, you know, he, so a few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but ESPN did this big, um, long, like multi-part documentary on the history of basketball. Jackie was um, involved with it. Yeah. Jackie wrote the book, the corresponding book. Yeah. Um, I'm failing to remember what it was, but anyway, basketball love story, basketball love story. And for that, I went to Paul's house in Charlotte and interviewed him for hours. You know, the, 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 the people that he was cross paths with and associated with, I mean, you know, we was with, he was, he was, he was a champion Celtic in the seventies. You know, he, he played for, a, you know, Lenny Wilkins won the title as a player coach with the Sonics. He was on that team, like sort of as the player assistant coach. And he was, he was a goat. He called a timeout the Celtics didn't have. And one of the, one of the great games in NBA history, the four overtime finals game between the Suns, um, the Suns and the Celtics. He played for the Suns too. Um, anyway, I've gone on too long. Um, he's so many things he would say that um, I always stick with me. One of the things that LeBron, you know, maybe he hasn't said in recent years, but he said it for a decade. Paul used to say, uh, nothing in the NBA is, uh, is a bed of roses. You know, no, no matter what you have, occasionally you're going to have problems. And, um, you know, it sounds like a pretty simple saying, but it's true in the NBA. You know, you've won eight games in a row. Not if there's going to be a bed of roses, you know, uh, whatever. So, um, he used to brag, Nick, about um, he would he would um, badger players to get married to the mothers of their of their children. I, I don't know if you could get away with it in uh, today's day and age, but he had a he had like a count of how many marriages he basically badgered the guys into getting married. He was very proud of that, and uh, he was his wife Carolyn. She was is remarkable. And he used to always say happy wife, happy life. Said that all the time. Um, so anyway, um, I learned so much from him. LeBron spoke very eloquently after they wanted to, the Lakers wanted Detroit tonight. And LeBron spoke very eloquently about Paul Silas. They didn't, you know, he only coached a season and a half. Uh, he got fired a second season. It wasn't a long stint, but it was very, very meaningful to me. Um <laughs> He, he, he came from an era, Nick, where he would be physical with players he, and he was strong. He, he'd grab them and he would throw them up against the wall. He would throw them into a locker, you know, um, and like I would know about it and I wouldn't report it. It was a completely different era. Now, my God, I'd be on first take the next day talking about how the coach of a team threw a guy in a locker. Um, anyway, um, rest in peace to Paul Silas. His, obviously his son, Stephen is uh, the head coach of the uh, Rockets, and he was very proud of him. So, For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. 
You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hitch, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's ever up there, whether it's the roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit DirecTV.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Uh, okay. Um, we miss you, Paul. So Nick, the team that you've had, the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not so sure you're going to think this fondly of this team in 20 years. Like I'm talking about Paul Silas. Um, uh, your, <laughs> your Brooklyn Nets have won seven of the last eight games. They had a, um, a long seven game homestand where they went six and one. And look, we talked about, although I tried to limit it on this show, we talked about them a lot in when they were struggling and had all the issues with Kyrie. Well, I think it's only fair to acknowledge that they've, it's been scheduled a little bit, but they've, they've really righted the ship and they've distanced themselves a little bit from this pack of 500-ish teams in the East. So this last uh, stretch for the Nets what has been working? Why has everything been turned around for them? Well, they're they're taking care of business first and foremost, because B, they're playing weaker opponents. Very clearly, they've played a lot of teams that were playing without a lot of different guys. There was a game in Toronto a week or so ago where the Raptors had like 10 healthy bodies. But those were games earlier in the year that the Nets would have found a way to lose a lot of times. And they're finding ways to win. You can point to the change from Steve Nash to Jacques Vaughn. I think for the most part, the players have really responded well to Jacques. He has gotten them to play better defense. The communication has been outlined several times as being pretty solid. And up and down the organization, they like Jacques' demeanor. But they also like Steve Nash's demeanor when he started. (laughs) So I think that needs to be pointed out as well. Offensively, I don't think Jock is doing anything real crazy with the sets there. Kevin Durant is playing at an MVP level. He has been incredible for the first two months of the season. Kyrie, when he's been on the floor, has been very good. They've gotten good contributions from Nick Claxton. Ben Simmons seems to have found a rhythm, but then he got hurt again and has been out as he's dealt with knee and calf issues. So. For the most part, you give credit when it's due, and they're winning. I hesitate because I've watched the ups and downs, and I think a big part of this is they played a lot of home games, yeah. and it's worth noting that they, they had a seven-game homestand. Was their like their longest since like the eighties or something? Yeah, I don't remember for, for years and years. And it's important yeah. to note here, and I I think it is a key wrinkle. Jacques Vaughn has basically given up on shoot arounds for the time being. They don't have shoot arounds. They play the game. They'll have a walkthrough before the game a couple days later. That's at, you know, 4 o'clock leading into a 7.30 game or so. And the players are just enjoying playing. When the wins are there, you can do that, and it's fun. If they start regressing a little bit, uh, then things might change. But 
to me, the focus is finally on basketball again. And we've gone through all the Kyrie drama and the Simmons stuff before that, and he was really not playing well. But the focus is on the game, and that has been really crucial in why they've gotten on the run they're on. And go back to Saturday night in Indy, they were they were punting that one. They rested everybody, and they yeah. found a way to win that game. And you walked in that locker room, and you started to see everybody looking at each other going, okay, the, the vibes <laughs> that had been so bad uh, over those last few weeks with all that was going on off the floor are very good at the moment because they're winning and the team's having fun. Yeah. It, you know, I didn't get to see any of that Indiana game. So I, I, I mean, I looked at the box score. Um, Indiana had their longest road trip in 35 years, which was a good road trip. It ended with them. Well, I think they played in Portland, but they had a great win in Golden State on that trip. Mm-hmm. And it was their first game back from the trip. And one of the things that you, that you see in the NBA is the first game back from a trip, a long trip, the teams tend to play a little bit off. But this, the Nets, uh, uh, um, Durant sat his first game of the year, right? Yeah. Uh, Simmons sat, Kyrie sat. Um, you're right. They sacrificed the game and they still won it. Uh, against a Pacer team. I mean, again, you can't take your hat off to the Pacers for all those wins on the West Coast and then say, ah, they, they were off. I mean, you have to appropriately give credit to the Nets for winning the game. And I looked, watching their defense this year has been like looking at a map of the Alps, you know, because it goes, you know, it, you know, they're, they're 30th. And then for like, like a week, they went to first. And then they went back down to like 23rd. So I went and looked, and during this eight-game win streak, you know, I don't know what it will be by tonight because um, um, we got games going on. But coming into tonight's games in this this last eight-game stretch, they were 12th in defense, Um, which actually that sounds a little bit more sustainable than being first. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And uh, and the 11th in offense, you know, Typically, you think this is a, a dominating offensive team. If they had been like first in offense and like fourth in defense, I'd have said, well, I don't know about that. But they're, it, those aren't stunning numbers. Now, Durant has been unconscious. He is incredible. I don't know if, you know, I don't have a catalog memory of his shooting. And I know that, you know, he had a couple of stretches when he was with the Thunder, when he won all those scoring titles. I mean, there were times I just never thought he would ever miss. So, but in this eight game stretch, I think he's shooting 63% from the field. I mean, 63%. Um, So there, there is some hot in there, but like, I don't think they're going to be a top 10 defense on the season, but you know, you tell me they play a 12th defense. Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, do, do you think the way they're defending recently is something that they can sustain? Because I think that's a huge factor for them. I, I think it's solid, but I, I have questions if they can maintain it because too often when you watch the Nets, and you saw it a lot during that run of home games where they were playing inferior opponents aside from uh, like the Raptors when they finally were healthy, the Celtics game comes to mind. Well, Celtics happened? beat them. That was one Celtics beat them. That was the loss. B, what happens is this team gets out to a nice start. They allow 
the team to kind of come back in the second quarter when KD gets his his break. The third quarter, they they push out a little bit, but they're never able to just run away with the game. And too often, I think, through the year, that may be an Achilles heel for the group. But again, they're finding ways to close at the end, and they're making uh, big shots. Usually it's Kevin. Uh, Kyrie has, has had his moments. But this is the push and pull in my own brain. In fact, my mom, who has now... Uh, been watching all these Nets games <laughs> every night <laughs> to see what's going on in my world. She was calling me today and she's going, hey, get, give them more credit. They're playing really well. And the issue I have, B, is this team was built to win a title. So you're viewing, That's true. <laughs> it, you're viewing it through the prism of, at least I am, I'm viewing well, this. No, you're the right. The, the, there's a curve that was established after, you know, their first 10, 15 games. I agree. Right. And, and so that's the issue I'm having. It's not that you can't give them credit and say that things are coming together nicely. And if Kevin Durant plays like the MVP, as he has uh, for these first two months and he can stay healthy, well, then anything uh, appears to still be po- possible. But this team was built to win a championship. And I don't believe on either side of the ball when you're watching the way they're playing, that the consistency will get high enough that you really believe that that can, can happen uh, this year. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is important to realize as we look back at the Kyrie situation and he's, he's played well, right? I mean, he's, mm-hmm. I, th- I think I looked up during this win streak or not, they're all not all wins, but during this eight game run, nine game run, He's averaging 27 or 25, 25 and change or 26 and change shooting 50% playing well. Uh, I know he's had some games where he's been better than others, um, but he's been playing. He's been playing, not causing drama on the court, not causing drama off the court. And this is the thing. um, When he got suspended, no matter what you want to talk about with that suspension, Whatever side you want to come down on, whatever, have your opinion, I don't care. He did recognize that he had he had he had gone into the red, right? Yeah. Um, he he had he had gotten to a point where it was now a question of what happens if the Nets do something like send him home for a while, or what happens if, you know, what sort of you know damage is he doing beyond just his you know normal day to day. And I think, at least for the time being, from my perspective outside, and I will never, never try to read what's going on in Kyrie's mind. He did what he had to do. Whatever the checklist morphed into or whatever, he did what he had to do to make come back to the team. He said what he had to say. I know that it was parsed like crazy. He said what he had to say. He had multiple, he had written statements and then press conferences where he said what he, what he had to, what he, what he, what he had to say to get back and that he's come back. And I know that, um, you know, that night, Jock Vaughn was, you know, maybe it was KD too. We're like, okay, let's focus on basketball now. And I was like, people have been trying to tell him that for four years, but I didn't necessarily believe it. I don't necessarily believe it now, but I kind of think that he did maybe, sniff 
that his situation was a little bit more fragile than maybe he thought. And I think for the moment, he may be operating on an understanding that he needs to, to take care of himself for next year as well right now. Do you think that I'm off base on that at all? No, I, I think you're absolutely on point. And I will give you some contextual evidence that pushes that argument along. Kyrie in the last couple of weeks in these post-game news conferences, we'll ask him questions. And, and we saw this, he had a, an interview with Megan Triplett uh, of the Yes Network after a game recently. And, and Megan is just asking Kyrie the, the normal questions you'd ask on the floor after a game. He played really well. They won. And Kyrie's giving like two word answers. And whoever got through to him in the aftermath of everything that had gone on with the suspension, with how poorly those first couple press conferences had gone, somebody got through and said, hey, you're walking on a very, very fine line here. Just don't say much of anything. Don't, don't engage if you don't want to. And right now, for the most part, I mean, he's had some some interesting answers in the last couple of weeks, a handful, but usually, and B, you covered him longer than I have. Kyrie likes to talk. Kyrie likes to give his thoughts on what's going on on a variety right. of different topics. And he is not delving into that at the moment. And to me, that's one of the most interesting changes from pre-suspension and controversy to now because it, it seems very clear that somebody said, hey, you're, you're getting yourself into too much trouble here, and you've got to pull back, and that's well, one of the ways somebody's, you see People have been day. saying that for years. Right, but it's <laughs> the message finally got through. For the now. aftermath yeah. of, of what's going on for now. And the thing is, he's playing well, but he was playing well before. Yeah. You know, he's played, you know, I mean, probably defensively, maybe not. He's never been great defensively, but He's playing well. Um, Jackson, our producer, by the way, looked up Katie's numbers. Um, I was saying, you know, he shot 63% or whatever in the last eight games. For the season, he's at 56%. And um, his highest in his career was 54 uh, through 35 uh, games um, a couple of years ago in, in Brooklyn. So um, he's, so they're both, they're both playing really well. And I think like if you're, if you're a Nets fan, if you're Sean Marks and you recognize, you know, there's still some issues with the team there. They still have trouble with size. Um, you know, yeah, they like just Nick Claxton or Daron Sharp, to his credit, had a nice game against the Pacers, but doesn't seem like he's pushing into the rotation right now. So Nick right. Claxton, so you use Simmons at center or good luck at the moment. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. 
The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Right, so they still have some flaws they may have to address at some point. Um, and I have no idea whether Kyrie will continue to operate. But, you know, a year ago, Nick, in about this time, um, so uh, we had some personnel changes. Malika Andrews left uh, New York and moved to Los Angeles to cover or to uh, host NBA Today. You were in the process of being moved from San Francisco to um, – to New York, which, and then the Warriors went to the finals, huh? Bontemps left San Francisco, left New York or left Boston and they went to the finals. I don't know what to say about you two, but anyway, you were in the process of moving to New York to cover the nets, which I'm sure they're still excited about that. Oh yeah. Arrived. Um, but a year ago right now, we were in this time where people had forgotten about Kyrie, uh, and his vaccination thing. He was just not with the team. And I was being, I was pitching in covering Nets games. Olm Young Masuk flew out from LA and covered some a bunch of Nets games. But I would I would go to these Nets, typically their road games, and I went to a number of them, and they were just handling their business at that time. Durant was playing really well. Harden wasn't great. We know that he wasn't great last year, but he was he was getting it done. You know, Cam Thomas, who actually had a big game in Indiana, he was like this sort of interesting rookie who was having these big games that Durant was taking under his wing. They were in first place, Nick. This is one thing about last year. Like, um, you know, you, you know, you can debate whether or not they would have continued in that stretch if Kyrie hadn't come back, but before Kyrie came back and they had that wacky home road stuff and everything sort of just threw them off from that, from there, they were handling their business. I feel like right now they're handling their business. And by the way, we got to January. Well, and then, you know, there was an injury to Harden and Durant. That was obviously a factor. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, but it, it was sideways before. Once Kyrie came back, first off, as soon as Kyrie came back, COVID ripped through the team. Not that that was related, but like, you remember he, he came back and he was immediately in health and safety. Yeah. Protocols. And then he was in like the protocols. The yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, they had some things happen. I don't want to say it was in a vacuum. But I remember thinking, being with them, they're doing fine. And, um, you know, remember early in the season, they like had stopped calling Harden's fouls. Like right now, the the NBA is calling a bunch of travels and carries. Well, if you remember at the beginning of last season, they decided they weren't going to go for some of the trickeration moves that Harden um, and some other players did, but typically Harden. And all of a sudden, Harden's free throws plummeted and he was complaining other guys are complaining well by like this time last season by like mid-december harden's free throws are back up like everything was going fine so i feel like 12 months later like the nets are in the same position uh they're farther back in the standings this year because of their earlier season drama this year but to me the question is can they keep it up so let me just ask you this you mentioned simmons um Simmons has been in and out, in and out, in and out. He's obviously got um, a knee issue, 
that is bothering him. There's still concern about his back because uh, he's still less than a year off major back surgery. Um, and, and we should note here, B, that he yeah. thinks they're connected. He thinks the back surgery is connected to the knee soreness, which is connected to now the new calf injury in the last couple weeks here. So, and Simmons has had some moments where he's looked really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we, we talked about Kyrie and, and, uh, and Durant. Give me your assessment of what you think you're seeing from Simmons and what you, where you think that's going. Simmons was really bad for the first month. Really bad. Struggled to a point where you were wondering if they could keep playing him anywhere close to the minutes he was playing. When you go back and look at turning points in the next season and certainly in the short term, look at they played a back-to-back in L.A. They played the Clippers and the Lakers. Simmons was bad against the Clippers, didn't play against the Lakers. He gets to Sacramento, he plays well. He gets to Portland, he plays better. He comes home, there's a stretch where he's on the floor, and he started to look like the player that we had seen in Philadelphia. Now he's hurt again. And he said he's feeling better, but it's, it feels like the type of situation where it's just going to be week to week, day to day. But when he has been out there in the last three weeks or so, he's been pretty good. And if they can keep him on the floor playing at this level, then they have a, a pretty good shot to win most nights, especially with the way Kevin and Kyrie are playing. But I'll throw another question back to you that I have bounced around in my own head as we get closer to the trade deadline in a couple months. What would it take if you're Joe Sy and Sean Marks to say, you know what, this team, it's just, it doesn't have enough and we should explore the trade possibilities specifically with, with Kevin and Kyrie. Do you think that happens at all between now and the deadline in February. It's a huge unknown. It's just a big unknown. You know, there was a point at this season where it was trending like, man, and I even talked about, I talked about how, you know, the Nets had to consider at least, you know, put on their, you know, maybe not their main whiteboard, but the whiteboard over on the side of the room, a plan about, well, if there's a year where we're in good shape on our, on our pick swap with, with Houston, it's this year because mm-hmm. the Rockets are going to be almost guaranteed to have a top five pick. So, you know, and Durant has great value still and other players in the roster have value like that sort of nuclear option button was sitting there. And, you know, I'm sure if Sean Marks were here right now, he would no, we never no, Hell no, absolutely. Yeah. Not. But of course they had to at least consider it. So the question is that plan's still sitting over there now. They're doing well right now. Things are, they're handling their business. I don't know what it would take. I don't know if it would be you know, having a losing nine of 10 or something and sliding to seventh place. And you're like, what are we doing? What I do know is the amount that is invested in this roster, not only the money, which is huge. It's like 200 and I don't even remember off the top of my head. It's 200 some odd million it's like around 250 million when you include the luxury tax, a quarter billion basically. So obviously it's a huge investment. But 
it is the the fruit of the rebuild that they had that is you know that when Sean Marks took over like this is what that rebuild has spawned it is the fruit of their all-in trade for Harden their attempt to salvage the all-in trade of Harden their maneuvers that they went through last summer to sort of fend off the Durant trade request and to sort of maneuver with Kyrie's uncertainty like they've got a huge amount of equity in making this work and they I'm sure they would admit that they've done a lot of it holding their nose going this is awful but we are going to try like heck to hold this together that's what they have done repeatedly 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 it has not been fun but they have done what they've had to hold together including jettisoning Steve Nash they didn't want to fire their coach, whatever it was, three weeks into the season. But, you know, they they had to stand up and say, we're not firing him to Kevin Durant. You don't then want to fire him right after that. That was another move where they're just trying like crazy to hold the thing together. They're going to get Ime Udoka. I mean, that move, I mean, it's a kind of a desperate move. It's, you know, like, I mean, on oh, one yeah, hand, you're looking... it's a very desperate move for a guy who's on a suspension for a year. Right. And then they back down because of whatever. But like the whole concept of doing that, blowing up your coach three games in and going and get another coach off suspension, which let's be honest, like they were pretty close to doing it. Oh, there were people in the organization thought it was done. Well, exactly. So I'm saying like, like you have all of those evidence. You know, we say on this pot all the time, actions over words. And that's especially true for the Nets, especially, especially true for the Nets. Their actions repeatedly have said they're going to do everything they possibly can to hold this together. So I'll say they're going to do everything they can to hold this together. And it may bite them in the end um, or they, you know, they may slip into the playoffs and be dangerous. I I mean, I, I can't sit here and look them in the eye and say, oh, look at the Celtics and the Bucks. I think you got a great chance of beating both because chances are a team like in the Nets position would have to beat both, but look, a thousand different things could happen to those two teams between now and then. So you're right. This is not a team that's built to try to, you know, stitch its way together to limp in and try to figure out a way to scratch their way through. Um, but Nick, I mean, you, you, I mean, this is just for me from not being with the team every day with the team every day. I don't know if you have a different opinion on that. I thought a few weeks ago that everything was pointing towards, all right, at the trade deadline, all options have to be on the table with the way they played recently with the way Kevin has played specifically and how incredible he's been. It feels like more and more for the reasons you just noted be that they're going to just try to get through this year, get into the playoffs, see what happens. You and I both know that there is no team in the world that wants to see a Nets team with a healthy Kevin Durant in a seven-game series. The Celtics laid the blueprint last year and how they defended him, but Kevin Durant is still Kevin Durant. You don't want to mess with him. I'll throw another point of the conversation, though, in here, and this factors in not just what's happening in the present, but what happens in the future. Before a game last week, I emailed our friend Bobby Marks. And I said, Bobby, to walk me through this Nets salary cap situation moving forward into the summer, assuming 
Kyrie comes off the books, and as we sit here right now, and you said you never try to get into Kyrie's head, I'm never going to try to figure out the relationship (laughs) at this point between Kyrie and the Nets because it has gone so many different ways in the last few years. But I wouldn't call it good. I'll never call it (laughs) good. I think that's a a safe way to go at it. But I would think that once this $36.5 million option uh, runs its course, that's probably the end of Kyrie's time in Brooklyn. So my point to Bobby in the question was, if you let Kyrie walk and you say to Kevin, hey, we love you. You've done everything we could have asked. We still want to build around you and your future, and it'll be 35 going into next year. What are their options then? And he said, well, you're out of the luxury tax, so Josiah will be happy about that. But with the way everything is set up and with Simmons' deal on the books, you only have the $11 million mid-level, and that's it. There is, there is not a, a major way in which to improve this team on paper, unless you're making some kind of major deal. And that is why, one, I think they're just going to let this season play out, hope for the best, keep winning games, see what happens. They're, they, I mean, but I, would not, I would not rule out, not that I, because I think it's going to happen, but just because I've seen too much, I wouldn't completely rule out Kyrie coming back. Would I bet on it? No. But I could see both of them not having a better option <laughs> your face <laughs> that your face although look i say this as somebody not only who's lived the last six weeks of time i i said many times you and i were going on all those different shows and and the question would always be posed to us did you think that kevin and Kyrie would start next season with the nets and knowing, knowing all the things that I knew at that point, I was going, there's no way. They, everybody understood, everybody in that organization understood the distractions, multiple, that Kyrie caused <laughs> on and off the floor. And the idea that everybody was just going to have this happy reunion and Kevin was going to come back and everything was going to be great, I, I didn't think there was a very good chance. But if I have learned anything, anything with the Brooklyn Nets it's that just when you think things are going one way they can go the opposite in good and bad direction so I'm with you I don't think you rule it out but at all I'm just laying out the different options of what could happen moving forward past whatever may happen this year but when you realize that there just doesn't seem to be a lot of options as far as improving this team uh, in the future and they don't have a lot of picks because they went all in on that Harden trade and tried to, to save a few from, from Philly and getting Simmons. You're looking at a future if Kyrie does go elsewhere with KD at 35, Ben Simmons dealing with the injury concerns he's dealing with, and a lot of other question marks on a roster that, again, is solid but was built to win it all. So let me let me ask you this, and I agree. Like, I I – Sitting here in December, I don't think that's going to happen, but I also – I would not rule it out. Um, what if they pivot the other way? What are the realistic things that they can do to improve this roster? I, I, I They're going to have to get another center at some point if they're serious about this because 
you know, just the reality that they may need somebody to lean up against Joel Embiid mm-hmm. in the postseason. Um, they do have the Sixers pick that they traded for last year that they're going to get this year. And they have the distant Sixers pick that they got. Um, the control of their own draft is, you know, basically controlled by Houston. Uh, but they do have a little bit of maneuverability and they have some guys on their roster. Like, I don't think Joe Harris is, I would think, I think he'd be looked at as a coveted contract, but there are people who would want him. Um, what about a trade to improve? Uh, I don't know who it would be, but, but you know, the opposite of, of what the, the nuclear option would be. Yeah. I, you would think it would have to be a big man that the name that keeps popping up that seemingly always pops up for any team that's looking for a big man is Miles Turner. If yeah. you're the if you're the Pacers, what do you see from the Nets that would make you go, okay, yeah, let, let's start talking. Here's that's, the thing about the Pacers. But that's the issue Sean Mark's now. gonna have. Yeah, right. The Pacers are winning now. Like, I don't know where the Pacers will be in February, but they're winning now. I I, I think. People and I and I know just because everybody knows that Heald and Turner were available, and Turner has talked about what he wanted to get paid, and you know he's basically asked the Lakers to trade for him in that one um, podcast interview, which was amazing, you know. Um, but it's working for Indy. <laughs> the bad loss to the Nets at home, notwithstanding, like I doubt decision have been made, but I would say you'd start to have to slide Indiana over to the neutral category, if not towards looking at buyer, being a buyer. You know, um, Andrew Nemhart, their um, their rookie guard has been so good, and they're going to get Chris Duarte, their number one pick from last year, back soon. They actually may have a little bit of a surplus at guard, and they do have good draft capital. Like, um, I don't think anybody should assume the Pacers are going to be sellers. I don't think you should assume they're going to be buyers yet, but I would slide that sucker back over to neutral right now. So yeah, that would be amazing for the Nets. But the other thing is let's say the Pacers do end up deciding to sell and Turner does truly become available. I know that he's been sort of on and off the market for a couple of years now, but there would be other bidders probably. And not maybe other bidders with, with more assets to provide. That's And that's what Brooklyn runs into, B, because you and I could go through every different option out there for them. We agree they need another big man. What big man are you bringing in that, that is readily available to them that's going to make that big of a difference? And right. yeah. that's the problem. And it's not just for Brooklyn. That's a lot of teams. But when you are, when you are stretched out financially and you are stretched out uh, organizationally and what you have to offer different teams, this is the situation that you find yourself in. Um, Durant is playing a lot of minutes. I have talked about how this is, you know, they can't help themselves. He's playing so well. He never looks like he gets tired, um, but he's averaging 37 minutes a game. By the way, he averaged 37 minutes last year. It's not like they they kicked up his minutes, but he's, you know, 34, whatever he is, 35, 34. Are you, uh, is that something to, I mean, look, what, what, what are you supposed to have a, have a crystal ball, but is that something that you're, they obviously have some concern over that. Otherwise they wouldn't have sat him down against the Pacers. Yeah. Hell yeah. You gotta be concerned. And I say that as a Tom Thibodeau 
<laughs> disciple of of the minutes yeah. police watch back in chicago i mean T- when, tom T- tibbs is your mentor the way uh silas i, 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 I didn't i didn't want to get in the middle of your silas stories be because i i enjoyed listening to him and i appreciate it but that is 100 percent what it was that's all i kept thinking as you were talking about what silas did for you and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that Vinny Del Negro, when I first started covering the Bulls for that year or so, he treated me with respect and, and as a professional, which I appreciated. But I learned basketball through watching those Tibbs teams day after day, year after year. And I say that in the context of our conversation now, because if the, if the question is, are you concerned about minutes, especially on a guy who has played so many over 16 years and is so crucially important to the success of this team. Absolutely. And you can tell in the way Jack Vaughn is, is talking after games that he's very, very concerned, but I, 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 I have to go on a very quick tangent in the context of Kevin Durant's minutes. I'm sitting in Gainbridge Fieldhouse in Indianapolis these Pacers fans are, are walking into the building realizing that Kevin Durant's not playing, Kyrie Irving's not playing, Ben Simmons' not playing. They've got eight guys out, basically their whole rotation. The intensity in that game and in that building, B, was that of a midweek game at the Vegas Summer League. Those two teams were just running up and down the floor. No defense. Defense wasn't. Yeah, it, was, it was like 140 to 138 yeah, was the just, final score. Just running up and, and down. And at the end, when the Pacers realized they were going to lose, their fans were kind of stunned. But that was a case study, that game, on why, as somebody who covers the game, loves the game, there are too many regular season games. Rick Carlisle asked him about it before the game. He said, hey, we had problems with Bradley Beal, less uh, the Washington Wizards the, the night before. You know that the younger players are going to bring it. I'm not talking about that. The Nets deserve all the credit for how they approach the game, and they won. Fans pay to see the stars. And if you can't, as a league, as a product, allow your stars the ability to perform, then you're going to run into the issues optics-wise of people saying that the NBA regular season does not matter. And as I sat there as a journalist watching and covering that game, that's the same thought that kept going through my mind. Why, as a league, is the NBA saying, oh, you got to watch this Nets-Pacers game where you've got eight guys sitting out? And I don't blame the Nets at all. I don't blame them at all for what they did. It's well within the rules. Teams do it all the time, even though they did it – with more guys at once. They didn't do anything wrong, and they won. I'm looking at this, though, as a fan of the game. I'm wearing my Horace Grant goggles to the Magic game, uh, you know, in in 95, (laughs) and I'm thinking, there are kids, and I heard some of the stories when we were sitting there. There were kids that paid to watch Kevin Durant. Their parents paid. They planned that whole weekend, that night, on coming to see Kevin Durant play. And I know how much that means to him, and I know how much it means to Kyrie. I've talked to them Also, it's really expensive. It's really, really expensive. Really expensive, and the league has a serious problem here. Okay, counterpoint. Counterpoint. Okay, hit me. Tonight in New Orleans, Suns played the the Pelicans. Second time in three days. 
Brandon Ingram is out. He's missed eight games in a row. Uh, Devin Booker hurt his hamstring, which is the third time in the last year, by the way, Booker has hurt his hamstring. And I'm not saying that it was sore, it wasn't sore before this happened, but unless I'm wrong, because the last two times I was actually at the game, he's hurt his hamstring trying to chase down a transition basket in defense where there was been a turnover or a long rebound. And he's like, he's booked it. He's like hit the afterburn to try to get back on defense. And he's, he's tweaked his hamstring now three times doing the exact same thing. And again, for all I know, it was already sore and that aggravates it. But I would, I would say to Devin Booker going forward, unless it is the playoffs (laughs) elimination game or a finals game, (laughs) when a player gets behind you, just let him score. Let him go. I don't, I don't even care if it's the game-winning let basket. Go. Let him score. Having said that, whatever, Booker is out. That was a very highly contested game. Now, Zion did play. Chris Paul did play. Very highly contested game. Went to overtime. Chris Paul hit a shot with like four seconds left or something to force overtime. Excellent high-level basketball. So you can have great games no matter what. And I would say that in general, the play in the NBA is very high, but of course the league is marketed around stars. And when the schedule comes out either if you're a Kevin Durant fan in Indianapolis, which you know that there are, they say one of the nets coming in. Oh my gosh, a Saturday night game yep. sound after football season, you know, at, you know, basically after college football season sounds great. And it wasn't a back-to-back, right? So no, it was a back-to-back. It was a back-to-back. Well, it was a back to back Thursday. Well, yeah, well, yeah, it's start of a four game trip. So we'll, so we'll see what the, the Nets have a four game trip and then they come back for the Bucks and Celtics. And then I think they play the Cavs the day after Christmas. So these last eight games now, you know, they did get the trailblazers in there without Dame Lillard, but they, they beat the Raptors at home after Siakam and Scotty Barnes had come back. They beat the wizards at home after Beal had come back. I mean, they did. It wasn't a pure, simple situation, but um, they they um, their schedule is you know so they have a four game road trip now. The first game was in uh, Indy. Second game is where you are tonight uh, or tomorrow in uh, DC tonight when this pod comes out, and then where they go Toronto and where else? They go Toronto. You don't even know. It's uh, it's your it's your road trip. You don't even know where they're going. It's it's that point in the year. I do know that they're going to have like two practice days, which they haven't had in between. By the way, you were just in Toronto like ten days ago. This keeps happening this year. You were just in Toronto. Well, and I was just in Indy. That's why it was like my head is just spinning with with this team and with this season. Right, and they just played the the Celtics at home, and they played them at home again in like ten days. I the the schedule is like that. There's all these things packed in the the Pelicans and the Suns have played each other three times already. The Pelicans are up 2-1, and they play each other again next weekend, and that's it. That's a that's a, um, uh, that's a a budding rivalry in the NBA, and they're done before Christmas of four games. Um, well, that, that's like the Nets just finished their four games with the Pacers because they played one of those weird home-and-home home, or home-home home yeah. baseball, baseball series. series. And yeah. Jackson, as Jackson points out here, Detroit is after Toronto. How dare you forget about Detroit? I mean, just think I, about the pizza. Oh man, this team! It out of all the years that the, the Nets have also taught me this. Be as I'm struggling to remember where I'm going in the next week. 
I, I used to tell people, oh, man, it can't get crazier than following the Derek uh, injury and in the aftermath in Chicago. It can't get crazier than the Gar and Pax Tibbs drama and, and the breakup of that team that everybody thought was going to at least get to the finals and potentially win a title. It can't get crazier than the last KD year in Oakland with the Warriors when that breakup uh, was, was going down that whole season. The Nets have taught me that I've got to just stop saying that because it can't <laughs> get crazier than what has happened with this team. Not just in the last month and a half since my plane landed and I switched from the Warriors to the Nets. I have never, ever been around a basketball team, uh, any team, that has had this many storylines and this much drama on a day-to-day basis. And as we come full circle from the beginning of our conversation tonight, what's so important here is that the Nets got worn out by all of that, and they've just been playing games, and they've been winning, and the focus is back on the floor. And if Kevin and Kyrie and Jacques Vaughn they can keep that focus there, then this team has a chance to grow and continue to succeed. But when the focus goes off the rails, as we've seen it uh, for a variety of reasons, usually centered around something that has gone on with Kyrie, that's when the product and the team itself really hits big problems. Well, until we talk again, who knows what's going to happen between now and then. Nick Friedel, thank you. For joining us from Washington, D.C., thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective Podcast. Thank you to Jackson, our producer. I'm headed out to L.A. tomorrow. I am going to games the next four days in L.A., Nick. A couple of Celtics games, Wolves and Suns. So four games in a row uh, in L.A. So uh, I am starting to feel like Bontemps with that kind of schedule. Um, We'll talk to you from L.A. on Wednesday. Uh, Thanks for listening.